we are going to go to the book of Mark, chapter 1, continuing Mark chapter 1, but would you find that and put your finger there and then flip over to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read some verses there at the outset today. Mark chapter 1, we're dealing with verses 21 to 34 this morning. In this section, which represents a day in Jesus' life, we're going to see that Jesus has authority. That is a key word to this section. I believe it's really a key to the section that runs all the way to chapter 3, verse 12. So we're going to be talking a good bit in the next few weeks about Jesus' authority over different things, different people, different entities. But here we're going to see that he has authority over doctrine, over demons, and over diseases. So if that makes it easier for you with some Ds, doctrine, demons, and disease. What are we saying? His teaching was authoritative. He is authoritative over the spiritual realm, and then he is authoritative. He has power over sickness. We're going to see all those things this morning. So hopefully you found Mark 1 and have made your way to Philippians 2. I'm going to read these verses for us. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That may be a familiar passage to you, talking about the humility. Christ, Jesus, who is God, became man. Why? So that he could die in our place, so that he could save us from sin. But what does it say here in verses 10 and 11? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. One day, those who want to bow to Jesus and those who don't want to bow to Jesus, all are going to bow. And it says, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. Everyone, everything God has created will glorify him. People, angels, demons will all attest to the fact that he is Lord. And that will bring the Father glory, is what this says. They will confess with their tongues, they will bow with their knees, all to the glory of God. So as we approach our passage in Mark today, I have two questions for you. First, are you bowing your knee to Jesus? And by that, what I mean is, are you bowing your will? Are you submitted to him and his sovereignty? Number two, are you confessing that Jesus is Lord? Is that your life? Is that on your lips? Are you confessing that Jesus is Lord? Is he Lord of your life? He is, but are you acknowledging it? Do you believe it? Do your actions show that that is your belief? Let me read our passage. Make your way back to Mark if you're not already there. This is Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read the passage that we're going to review today, and I'd like to invite you to stand, please, as I read it. Mark chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. 
And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Now at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, it is good to be in your house today. It is good to remind ourselves that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are here with us. And Lord, we thank and praise you for that this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to see your power and authority in this day early on in your ministry. Thank you that we can read it and understand it. Please help us to apply it. Lord, you have sent your Holy Spirit so that we can have understanding, so that we can receive his teaching of this passage. And I pray that that would be the case today, that you would help me to be fully submitted to your Holy Spirit and empowered by him to teach this passage and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to submit and to do your will and to obey. Lord, help us. We need your grace. We need your help in order for this passage to change us. We desire to be changed into your image. We desire for you to do a work in our hearts. But we can't do that on our own. We're looking to you, knowing that your word will accomplish what you send it to do. And it is alive and powerful today. We pray that we would be able to experience that. That we would leave this place knowing that we have heard from you and know how you want us to respond to your word as we live our lives today and this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Three ideas, somewhat of an outline, three main points. First, Jesus has authority to teach. Those first two verses talk about him going into the synagogue and teaching, so we'll look at that. He has authority to teach. Second, he has authority over evil. The spiritual realm, that is part of his authority as well. He can exercise authority over evil spirits and such, and we'll see that twice, really, in this passage. And then he has authority over sickness, physical ailment, illness, verses 29 to 34. He has authority, and this is just the beginning. We're going to see lots of 
different situations in which Jesus is showing and exercising his authority and Mark by the Holy Spirit's inspiration is telling us about these specific events to show us the authority that is in Jesus. So going back to verse 21 together and beginning this first point, Jesus has authority to teach. Verse 21 says, Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. Capernaum. This was a fishing village. This is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Where had Jesus grown up? According to the Gospels, he had grown up in Nazareth. So this is a different place from that. It's not just another name for it. But this city was more important than Nazareth. Nazareth was sort of the wrong side of the tracks. And this was a bigger city. It had a Roman garrison stationed there. It had a tax office. We're going to meet Levi in a coming study. So there was a tax office there, a bunch of soldiers, and it was located on a major crossroads. So Jesus made this city of Capernaum his headquarters. He moved from Nazareth, and it seems probably stayed in Simon Peter's house a lot of the time that he was there. This was the main place where he spent time in ministry. It was, it was home base for him. It was also home to the four disciples that we met last time, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And we have, I'll point, probably point them out as we go, but here's an immediately here in verse 21, one of Mark's favorite words. Uh, it's also translated as soon as, later in verse 29, and at once in verse 30. So we're going to keep seeing he's making the action move forward. And he says, immediately, he gets to Capernaum immediately, and he, then Mark tells us when, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and what did he do there? He taught. What is a synagogue? Synagogue is different from the temple. Synagogue is more similar to a church building, a place where people meet together. It was a place of worship. It was a place of instruction. And we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus frequently taught in the synagogue. And later in the book of Acts, we read that Paul often went to the synagogue if there was a Jewish house of worship where he went. These came about during the Babylonian captivity because they couldn't travel to the temple. It had been destroyed. So any place there were at least 10 men, and understand that men is different from how we would use it because you became a man in that culture and society when you were 12 years old. So teens and adults, we would probably say, if you have at least 10 of them, you can form a synagogue. And there would be different lay elders would be the best way for us to describe it. These are not trained priests or even prophets, the way we would think of that for the Old Testament, but these were men who were trained, same as anybody else, in the scriptures, and they served as elders. So you'd have 10 of those form a synagogue, and that's where people would gather. What day of the week were they coming? They were coming on Saturday. They were coming on the Sabbath, the day of rest and worship. They would come together and they would, to us, I'm just going to be honest, it, it would have seemed pretty boring. Some of you may be bored sometimes in here, and that's between you and the Lord, and we can talk about it. But they would come, and somebody would read the scripture, and it was kind of laid out. If you've ever been to or come out of a liturgical church, that here's the reading for this week, and the reading for that week, and the reading for that week. So everybody's kind of doing the same thing. So somebody would get up and read the passage for that day, and if there was any comment or teaching after that, the way that would have looked is that, well, 
uh, Rabbi Hillel says that this passage means this. But Rabbi Gamaliel says it means this. Just a series of quotes. Thank you. We're done. We're going to go on. We're going to chant this and quote that. And it, it was nothing really that they were teaching, per se. It was just sort of, here's the passage. I'm going to quote that for you out loud. And here's different people's opinion. It would be like me bringing one of my commentaries up here and just reading straight from it for you. I have a Ryrie Study Bible here with me right now. If I just read to you all the notes from my Ryrie Study Bible, it would be kind of like that. Charles Ryrie said this about this verse. And you all know I do that. I quote. I do. But hopefully when I get up here, I'm not just quoting. If you feel I'm doing that, see me afterward. So this is what was going on. And it was kind of, maybe routine would be a good, good word. Maybe boring's a bad connotation. So it was, it was routine. It was the same thing each week, which makes this story all the more interesting because it was not a run-of-the-mill service. When it says that Jesus taught, we're going to see that a lot in Mark's gospel, that Jesus taught, he taught. Sometimes it gives us the words he taught. Usually it doesn't. It just says he taught. So this is one of those times he goes into the synagogues and he teaches. Verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one having authority. If you mark in your Bible, underline or circle or put a box around that word authority and not as the scribes. They were astonished, it says. That's a strong word. We don't know exactly what he said, but what we do see is the effect of the teaching. A lot of times Mark focuses on the emotional response of the people. And that's what we have here. They're astonished. They're blown away by what he's saying. Someone said, Jesus' direct, personal, and forceful teaching was so foreign to their experience that those who heard them were astonished. I already explained to you that they often quoted this rabbi and that rabbi and may not have even given their opinion. But he's not quoting anybody, is he? Jesus is the word of God. He knows what it says. He knows what it means. He knows how it applies. I would have loved to hear that sermon. Be a lot better than what you're listening to right now. No question. He is telling them, and he has the authority because he wrote it. He is the word of God. He knows the Bible like the back of his hand because he is. It's from the mind of God. Through human authors, inspired, we understand that. But he is the authority, and he is speaking to them with authority. Not like the scribes. So this word authority, that I told you to circle or underline, for what, what it's worth, the Greek word is exousia, but it means authority or power. Some of your translations may have the word power here. And that's the focus. That's what Mark is saying. He had authority behind his teaching. He wasn't just up there reading. He wasn't just quoting other people. He was saying, this is it. This is what it means. If you want an example, you can go to the fourth chapter of Luke and that first sermon in Nazareth, and he, he reads from Isaiah the prophet, which was the reading for that day, and then he says, in your eyes this has been fulfilled. I'm here, is kind of what he's saying. Similar to what we looked at last time in Mark, what was his message? That the time is at hand, the kingdom is near, repent and believe. That's the idea, and he's doing it with power that they've never seen before. That's the first idea. We don't get a lot of details because it's Mark, and he's just clipping along. But it says that Jesus is there, he's in the synagogue, and he's teaching with power. 
And what else did I tell you? That Mark is going to focus on the response of the people. Well, the, the people are amazed. They're astonished. But one person in particular had a strong reaction. Let's look at that. This is moving into the second point now. Jesus has authority over evil. This first miracle that's recorded in Mark has to do with the spiritual realm. I'm in verse 23. Now, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. Stop right there for a second. That doesn't seem like a surprising statement, does it? It's just kind of, there was a man there who had an unclean spirit. That means he was demon-possessed. The people may or may not have been aware that he was demon-possessed, but he was there and he was comfortable with what was going on in that church service. Why? I don't want to go too far out on a limb here, but in part because the word of God wasn't normally taught with authority and power. So all of the ho-hum, all of the tradition, all of the normal way we do it, somebody could be their demon-possessed and nobody noticed. But Jesus came in, and he is teaching the word of God with authority, and all of a sudden, there's a response, and a very strong one. So it says, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Unclean spirits. What are we talking about? When you see unclean spirits in your Bible, it's referring to demons. Okay, Bob, what's a demon? A demon is a fallen angel. As we look at other passages, and I'm not going to take time to do that this morning, we see that God created a certain number of angels. I believe it happened before he created the world, but long ago, God created a finite number of angels. We look at Revelation. We've done that more recently. And at the beginning of Revelation, it talks about, middle of Revelation, it talks about a third fell. So Satan, as we know him, Lucifer was his name as an angel, these were all created as holy angels. Lucifer rebelled against God, disobeyed God. And when he did that, a third of the angels, however many that is, went with him and got cast out of heaven. They could no longer permanently dwell with God in heaven. Some of them, we know from other parts of Scripture, were chained in darkness some time ago. Others are free to roam about. And we see them described different ways. Old Testament, New Testament. Read the book of Daniel, and you're going to read about the prince of... Somebody help me out. Is, it, is it prince of Babylon? Prince of, Persia. prince of Persia. Thank you, that's the word I was looking for. Is a de demonic influence, a, a demon, a fallen angel. And we read in Ephesians, for example, about principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this world. Demons are real, folks. I don't expect anybody to stand up demon-possessed and start shrieking this morning. But this could happen. Because there are still demons alive and active in this world. I guess while I'm a little bit sidetracked, I should say, I do not believe that any believer can be indwelt, possessed by a demon. Well, why not? Because I believe that at salvation, we are possessed by the Holy Spirit. And where the Holy Spirit is, no demon can come in and take charge. Because the Holy Spirit is God, and the Holy Spirit is in each one of us who is a believer. So if that's something that's keeping you awake at night, if you're a believer in Jesus, you've received salvation by grace through faith, you do not need to stay up at night wondering, oh, is a demon going to come possess me? A demon could influence you. A demon could tempt you. Based on things I've heard and read and what the scripture says, a demon could cause you physical harm, throw you across the room, but cannot indwell you. 
if you have the Holy Spirit inside. Unclean spirits are fallen angels. They're demons. God limits what they can do. God is in control of them. Um, you, you may be of the impression that Satan created demons. Satan didn't create anything. He doesn't have the ability to do that. Only God can create. So these are the fallen angels, rebelled with Satan, and they are limited by God. But during the time when Jesus was on earth fulfilling his earthly ministry, they seemed like they were particularly active. And God allowed them to be particularly active so he could show his power over them. And he can still do that today. Mark introduced this spiritual battle back in verses 12 and 13 of this passage when we talked about Satan came and tempted Jesus in the wilderness. You remember we talked about that? And Jesus was victorious over Satan in the wilderness. Yes? Thank you. Two of you said yes. Jesus was victorious over Satan in the wilderness. Yes? Okay. We remember that. Otherwise, I have to get back up to that passage and start over. Jesus was victorious, and that victory forms the basis of these encounters with demons for the rest of this gospel of mark his victory has already been won he's already proven that he is stronger than satan so he is certainly stronger than any of the other angels fallen angels demons who are in cahoots with satan so this man has an unclean spirit and he cried out that can be translated shrieked it was not the way i read it a few minutes ago probably i don't know what it sounded like i'm not going to try to imitate it but whatever the creepiest voice that you can imagine, probably plenty loud, that is the voice that is saying, let us alone, and so on. John Corson said, this should not be surprising. Whenever the Son of God shows up, the forces of hell respond. So here's Jesus teaching with authority, and that demon can't be silent. What does he say? What have we to do with you? Or another way that can be translated, why do you interfere with us? What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? The next statement we have is a question. That may be right, that it may have just been a statement. Did you come to destroy us? It could be more forceful as you have come into the world to destroy or ruin, not annihilate, but ruin us. Jesus was a threat to them. That demon sensed that what are you going to do? He recognized him. Did you come to destroy us? When he says us, did, did you notice that? Pronouns are important. Singular, plural. Do you see that? Us is italicized in my New King James here, so we'll ignore that one. But he cried out, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. He keeps going back and forth. That could be one of two things. He could be speaking on behalf of demons everywhere. He could be speaking on behalf of multiple demons inside this man. We don't know. I think it's the first one, but we really don't know. But what does he say? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He recognizes him. He recognizes who Jesus is. Well, how would he know that? Because he was created by Jesus, and demons, or fallen angels, they can see spiritual things that we just can't see. So he would have recognized Jesus as the creator God come in human flesh. And he says, Jesus of Nazareth, I know who you are. You are the son of God. He sees something that even Jesus' disciples really didn't get straight until the end after the resurrection. 
he recognizes Jesus of Nazareth, human being, you are the Holy One of God, Messiah. You are God, the Son of God. We have humanity and deity in this statement by a demon. What is Mark doing here? He's establishing Jesus' credentials. He's saying, this is Jesus, and this is who Jesus is. Someone said that even the spiritual underworld recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Now, there's good news here, because there is no case too hard for Christ. There's no one too far gone, no one too deep in sin, no one possessed by too many demons. He is able to rescue. That's what his name means. Jesus, the, the Lord, is salvation. And no one in this room, no one who ever hears this, no one who ever reads this verse is too far gone. He will rescue us if we humble ourselves, believe and repent like we talked about last time. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Now where it says, be quiet and come out of him, literally it's be muzzled, be silenced. Or like this paraphrase better, shut up and get out. That's what Jesus is saying to him. That would have been fun to hear, wouldn't it? I would have enjoyed that. I would have been scared to death. But I would have enjoyed hearing that. See, Jesus did not want a demon to speak about him or for him. He didn't need him to. He didn't want him to. And what's interesting to me and what was amazing to the people is that the demon obeyed. He tried to get in his last word here, it seems, and, and made the guy convulse. Maybe something like a seizure. I don't know and scream, yell, and then he came out. Verse 27, then they were all amazed. I'm going to guess they were. I would have been. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, there's our word again, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now let's bring this up to modern times a little bit. If something like this happened in a church service, then right after that, everybody would be shocked. Everybody would be talking to each other. You would be getting out your phones. Who got that on video? Who, and you're going to send it to everybody and it would be all over social media. It would go viral. It would be spread abroad. They didn't have any of that. So by word of mouth, it spread quickly through this town of Capernaum. Everybody's hearing about it. This is what he does. Why were they so amazed? I told you why they were astonished at his teaching. Why were they amazed that this demon was cast out? Well, that also has to do with the way they were used to it being done there. I said that Mark was focused on the responses of the people. They were amazed because in their day, there were people who were in charge of exorcisms, casting out demons. And they might have incense and incantations and they needed the the demon to speak its name and so they could cast out the demon they had these formulas and and all these ways they were going to say it and do it and a lot of times they failed and what did jesus do did he go through a whole theatrical presentation did he have a bunch of words that he had to say and a rhyme and, and a meter no what did he do he said shut up and get out and the demon obeyed so the fact that he was successful, and by the way, I don't believe you're going to find 
as you read through the Gospels, read all four of them, I don't think you're ever going to find a time when Jesus was not successful in casting out a demon. They all obeyed him every time. Hundred, a thousand percent, hundred percent, batting a thousand, that's what I'm trying to say. He did not fail at any attempt. And that one word, just a few words, were enough to send out demons. So to them, this was a new doctrine, or we could say the word teaching. It was a new teaching. It was fresh. And it had authority. This same authority in his teaching applies to the spiritual realm. He can cast out demons with a word. One paraphrase has this little section this way. Everyone present was so astounded that people kept saying to each other, what on earth has happened? This new teaching has authority behind it. Why, he even gives his orders to evil spirits and they obey him. That's the idea. He has amazing authority, power that they've never seen before. And so far we've seen Jesus' authority in his teaching and we've seen Jesus' power in the spiritual realm. So now we're going to see this third point that he has power over sickness. He has power over physical, the diseases. Verse 29. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue... So the church service, if you will, is over. They entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Again, Mark just blows through these stories like it's nothing, but there's some serious stuff going on here. They go to the house of Simon and Andrew. Remember that they're brothers. We know from John chapter 1, they were originally from Bethsaida, but they had relocated, it seems, to Capernaum. And that would be Jesus' home base. Simon's wife's mother. What does that mean? It's a mother-in-law. That's how we would say it. What else does that tell me? If Peter had a mother-in-law, then Peter had a wife. Very good. Y'all are a bright group. I like this. Had a wife. Paul also says that Peter was married. And I don't, I'm not going to get too sidetracked on this either. But that presents a little problem for those who believe that Peter was the first pope. Because very clearly he was married and he had a mother-in-law. You can think about that on your own. It could be, some have suggested, that his mother-in-law was living with him. That may mean that she was a widow, that her husband had died. Whatever the case, she's there and she has a fever. How many of you had have had, don't say if it was yesterday, but in the, in the recent past, if you've had a fever, raise your hand. Just, okay, it wipes you out, doesn't it? It's pretty miserable. And, and whether it's flu, COVID, something else, it makes you feel yuck. And for a long time. So it says here that she seems to be too ill to get out of bed. Luke, who was a physician, says that it was a high fever. The Greek word that's used here is similar to the word for fire. So she's on fire with a fever. That's kind of how we would say it. So this is serious. It might have even been life-threatening. And what does Jesus do? They tell him about it immediately. They tell him right away, and he takes care of it. What does he do? He took her by the hand and lifted her up. This is the first healing that Mark records in his gospel. It, it's private. It's personal. Uh, the parallel accounts give us some different details. Matthew says that Jesus touched her hand. Mark says he helped her up, took her by the hand and helped her up. Luke says he spoke to the fever. He rebuked it, and it left. 
Now, that, that's not a problem for us. That's not a conflict. It's saying the same story a little bit different way, a little different perspective, different way someone told the story. Well, what's going on here is that Jesus is healing a disease, an infirmity, a sickness. He's doing it instantaneously. She's better. He's showing his power. He has authority that he can tell sickness, beat it, and it does. And this is the way a lot of, not just Mark, but all the Gospels record Jesus' miracles. Often it was just a small group of people that saw it. It wasn't a huge fanfare. It wasn't a parade passing by, usually. He had compassion, and and he healed, in this case, Peter's mother-in-law. And what does it say she did? She ministered. She served them. As simple as that statement is, please don't miss it. What is the key verse for the book of Mark? We just quoted it in our church service four weeks in a row. So what is it? Mark 1045. Does anybody remember kind of how that goes? Yes. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's a great way to say it. So what is Mark's focus? On Jesus as the suffering servant. So when this first person is healed of the fever, how does she respond? She gets up and starts serving them. I think that's significant. I think it's significant that she even could. Because if you have been confined to bed because you're feeling so lousy with this fever, are you normally going to just get up and go fix food for everybody? No way. But Jesus healed her. And he healed her completely and instantaneously, it seems. I appreciated what John Phillips said. He said that serving is the natural response of the heart that has known the transforming touch of Jesus. If Jesus has healed you, spiritually or physically, and you know he did it, spiritually, he's the only one who can do it, your response is going to be service. You're going to want to serve him. You're going to want to serve other people. That is the natural response of the heart that has known his transforming touch. Now, it seems that this is all on the same day, the Sabbath. And that's a controversy in and of itself. We will get to that soon. Jesus is healing Peter's mother-in-law on the Sabbath. He cast out a demon on the Sabbath. We're going to see what he does in these next few passages as well. But right now, we're at the end of the Sabbath. And we, what do we think of as a day? Our day begins at midnight and runs to 11.59 the next night, right? That's how we think of as a day. We have a calendar set up that way. That's not how they thought of as a day. Theirs started 6 p.m. and ran to 5.59 p.m. on the next day. It began at evening. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Does that sound familiar? That's, that's the Jewish way of thinking of time and days. So here we are at evening, verse 32, When the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. To us, in English, it sounds redundant, doesn't it? At evening when the sun had set. Well, of course, no. They had two evenings. The first one was at 3 p.m., And the second evening was when the sun set. It's when the first three stars appeared. That's when the Sabbath began. I think it was the ruler of the synagogue would blow a trumpet and let everybody know, hey, the Sabbath has started. 
And same thing when the first three stars appeared on our Saturday. So from Friday night to Saturday, that's the Sabbath. So why is he saying that? He's saying the Sabbath was over. And all these people who are about to bring their loved ones to Jesus for healing or to have demons cast out, they could do that because now they could move around, travel. Those are laws that had been added. It's not that God had said, do not walk more than this many feet or yards or miles even on the Sabbath. But they had everything codified and they wanted to make sure that they could keep their rules. So at the end of the Sabbath, when the scribes of their day said that they could carry a burden, carry a friend on a stretcher, whatever, that's when they start. And they brought to him, they brought their friends to Jesus. Again, I'm going to quote John Phillips. And I, see, I feel so hypocritical after telling you that's what the scribes did. I shouldn't be quoting anybody in this service. But anyway, people with ailments that had no name or that had a name but no cure were brought to him. The great physician, the one who never lost a case, I like that, and never charged a fee, I like that too, had come. Enough miracles were performed that night to fill a book. Enough miracles to satisfy even the most hardened skeptic. Never in history had the world seen the like of what happened that evening at Peter's front door. So there are sick and there are demon-possessed. Do you notice that's two different categories? I realize throughout history there have probably been misdiagnosis of someone who's demon-possessed or someone who is mentally ill. But it's not all one and the same. It's not that any time you're sick... There's a demon that needs to be cast out of you. That's false teaching. That's not true according to the Bible. And it's also true that there are some who are demon-possessed. And they seem to know. At least Mark seems to know. <laughs> if nothing else, Jesus knew whether it was a spiritual or physical ailment. The whole city. Now, granted, that's probably hyperbole, like when we were in the book of Ruth and the whole city came out. No, but it was a lot of people. It was a bunch of people. Um, another translation says the whole town. So it's a crowd large enough to spread the word. Everybody knew what Jesus was doing. And when it says many, that probably sounds a little weaker to us, that many were healed and many demons were cast out. Well, there were a lot. And that may be understatement because if you look at the parallel passage in Matthew, it says all who came to him were healed. All who came to him who were demon-possessed were cleansed. So all who came to him, he did not lose a case. He did not struggle and, oh, I can't really deal with that one. He wasn't picking and choosing like some modern-day healing services. Whoever came to him, he healed. It's a long day for him, isn't it? I don't know how long into the night this healing service went. But he was driving out demons he was healing all who were brought to him. And one more note about that. He did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Similar to before. He said, shut up and get out. Same idea. He's not going to let them speak for him. Why not? Have you thought about that? Why, why did he say, be quiet? Well, there are at least three possibilities and maybe all of them. One is that he is showing his power over them by telling them, be quiet. If he tells them to be quiet, they can't speak. 
along with that, and we'll talk about this on another occasion when we get to another demon being cast out, part of the exorcists of that day, they needed the demon to speak. They needed the demon to acknowledge that he was possessing that person. Jesus didn't know that, need that. He, he could see it and he could respond to it. Second, Jesus wanted people to see what he did and hear what he said. And he didn't need the testimony of demons for that to happen. He didn't want people believing on him because, oh, this demon said he's the Messiah. They wanted, he wanted them to see and to hear his own testimony. Third, and we read a statement like this in John a lot, that his time had not yet come. It wasn't his timetable yet. The father had a very specific timetable for his ministry. We think it was about three years, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less. And there were certain seasons, and it was settled long before when he would come into Jerusalem and the Passover, at which time he would die on the cross. All that was established. And as more people understood he was the Messiah... What did they think the Messiah was going to do? Free them from Rome. They were looking for a political Messiah. And the more people who knew about him, that he was the Messiah, the more trouble that was going to cause. They would try to make him king. They would try to get him to overthrow the Roman government. So it wasn't time yet. He didn't want demons speaking for him. It wasn't time yet. And he was showing his power by telling them to shut up. But one more thing here. The demons knew him. The demons' theology, their knowledge of God, was exactly right. They knew God. We're in the study of James. We've, we've come to this passage with the men's study, and I think that the youth have gotten to it as well. James 2.19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. It's not enough for us to believe that there's a God. It's not even enough for me to have a head knowledge that Jesus is God's son. Or that Jesus is God. Those are good things to know. But it has to go beyond a head knowledge. It has to be a belief that there is a God, I am a sinner, and I need him to save me. The repentance and belief that we talked about that were part of Jesus' message. So don't sit there satisfied, I have some head knowledge about the Bible. I know this, I know that, I've read the Bible. That's good. Please continue reading the Bible. But that in and of itself is not going to save you. Your knowledge that Jesus was a great teacher or Jesus is the Son of God or Jesus died on the cross or even that Jesus rose again, if it's only a head knowledge, a fact, a trivia question, that doesn't save you. Saving faith is going to begin a relationship with God, of the Holy Spirit living in you like we talked about earlier. So these three areas, these are the three for today, that Jesus has authority to teach, Jesus has authority over evil, and Jesus has authority over sickness. If you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, this is the one who has so much power and authority. Is he your savior from sin? Have you put your faith have you come to believe in him? Have you turned from your sin and turned to God? You need to believe on him and confess him as your Lord and Savior. But most of you I'm talking to right now, you've done that. You believe on Jesus as your Savior. Does your life reflect your belief? 
Does your life reflect your belief in his authority? You say, yeah, Bob, I know the right answers here. I'm sure you do. But as you think about this past week, does your life reflect his authority in your time? How'd you spend your time this last week? Does that reflect the fact that he is Lord and master of your life? That he has all authority to tell you how to spend your time? What about your money? How did you spend your money this last week? Does your bank account, if you will, that, that check register in your mind, would that reflect that he is your Lord and master, that he is your authority in your life? What about your gifts, your talents, your abilities that he's given you? As you look at back at this past week, would someone look at your life and say, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord of his life. Jesus is Lord of her life. Because the way you're using the gifts, the talents and abilities, even the spiritual gifts, reflects that God is my master. Jesus is the Lord of my life. I don't have anyone or anything in mind. I'm just throwing out possibilities so that we can apply the truth that we've been talking about. Jesus is authoritative in his teaching. Yes, he is. Jesus has authority over evil. Yes, he does. Jesus has authority over sickness. I believe that. That's, that's why I'm praying for such and such or so and so. Good. But is it affecting your life? Is change taking place in your life because of this living word? The two questions I began with after we read Philippians 2. Are you bowing your knee? Are you bowing your will before Jesus? Does he have everything? I don't mean does he have everything except this one thing over here. That's off limits. That's mine. Does he have everything? Are you all in for Jesus? Number two, are you confessing that Jesus is Lord? And by that, I mean with your life, but also with your words. Have you told anybody the good news about Jesus in the last week or the last month? We're halfway through the year. Have you told, him, told anybody about him this year? Are we confessing him as Lord by the way we live, by the way we speak? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? anyone here who would say, Bob, I'm concerned about my soul. I don't know whether I know Jesus as my Savior. I'm just not sure. I don't know whether I understand. But I am concerned, and would you pray for me? If that's true of you, would you let me know to pray for you? Either lift your hand and put it back down, or look up at me. Make eye contact with me and look back down. Okay, is there anybody here who would say, Bob, Jesus had a word for me today. The Holy Spirit has shown me something that I need to change, and by his grace, I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey. If you're doing business with God right now because of what he's leading in your life, and you'd like me to remember you in prayer as I close, would you do the same? Let me know by lifting your hand, putting it back down, making eye contact with me. Yes? 
Yes. Any others? Father, I pray that you would continue speaking to us. May there not be anybody here who is just giving lip service and and calling Lord, Lord, who doesn't know you. Father, I praise you for the authority that you have placed in Jesus and, and the way that was displayed here in this first day of ministry in the book of Mark. Lord, may we live like he is the authority over this world and may we live like he is the authority over us because he is. But so often we get sidetracked. We get our priorities out of whack. We forget. We don't intentionally spend time talking with you and reading your word and asking you what you want us to do each day. So, Father, would you put us back in alignment? Would you allow your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts that we would acknowledge you as Lord with our lips but with our lives? Ask for those who have said that you have convicted them of something today and that they are going to make a change. Give them the grace. Give them the power to do that. All power is yours, Lord. So do a work in us. And Lord, do a work through us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.